0: Um, maybe another week and then we'll probably need to do a review. So if you missed last week and you're accustomed to me retreading the tire at the beginning of my message, um, I mentioned last week that I think our cadence will be, there'll be two or three messages and then we'll do a review Sunday on the whiteboard, more of a teaching style. Um, if you, if you're lost this morning, um, As far as what's going on in the text, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message, uh, and that can be found on our website, sbcne.org. In 1 John 2, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, The frank manner in which John just finished proclaiming that everybody sins, and if you think you don't, then you're just self-deceived, might lead somebody quickly to the place where they assume then that sinning is no big deal Uh, Because everybody does it, so you might as well just get used to the idea of being somebody who sins because you're always going to do it, so who cares? Eat, drink, and be merry. And immediately, uh, after making the point that nobody can say they don't sin, John does the same thing that Paul does in Romans where he says, that's not to say that we should just keep sinning and not worry about it. I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. Uh, And I'm going to try to unpack that much more this morning as we go along. But let's let's concentrate to begin with on this idea that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate uh, with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. There's a slew of verses that we could cite along these lines. I want to begin by pointing out that the word here for advocate in 1 John is the same word for helper in John 14. Um, But John very specifically identifies the paraclete, the helper, the advocate, is not the Holy Spirit, but is our great high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? So the picture that he's trying to draw for you, as far as what's going on in heaven right now, as you're living your life, however that's happening, there's this interchange that's happening between God the Father and God the Son, where you, if you if you belong to Jesus, if you have faith in Christ, you, as you're living your life, are are being interceded for by Jesus to the Father, which might lead you to believe that God is really still angry with you over your sin, but Jesus is there just constantly calming him down so that God doesn't strike you dead in the midst of your bad behavior. Not the case. God doesn't need to be reminded of anything that Jesus has accomplished. We need to be reminded constantly of what Jesus has accomplished. So rather than emphasize this view of Jesus being like, it's all right, Dad, I'm I'm dealing with it. Please be patient. That's not what's happening at all. View it more like the Father and the Son and their perfect unity and communion together are conversating about the sureness of your salvation the ultimate reality of your redemption into the presence of Jesus Christ and God the Father. And when Jesus is interceding for you, what he is in effect doing is taking the prayer of confession that was referenced in just a couple of verses ago, and we talked about last week, he's taking that prayer of confession and he is presenting it as though it were his own to God the Father on your behalf. Because prayers of confession from a sinner are not really what's pleasing to God. Saying the same thing that God says about your sin by itself would save nobody. We need somebody between us and him. Somebody whom God can hear. Somebody whom he might be willing to listen to. So in Romans 8. I'll go slow enough that you can scribble these down, but I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of them. Romans 8, and 34. <clears throat> Paul, the Holy Spirit says, Paul's not the Holy Spirit, but you know what I mean. The Holy Spirit says through Paul, um, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Great question. Have you, have you come up with an answer yet? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. So who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Well, I'm going to bring one against myself, for starters. I'm going to say with God, I am a sinner in need of mercy, right? He goes on. Who shall bring a charge, any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the charge comes first from me if I'm a Christian. Father, Lord, Holy Spirit, I have sinned and here's what I did. That confession is caught, received, heard, however you want to put it, by the Trinity, by the Godhead. Jesus takes it, seated at the right hand of God and intercedes on my behalf with my confession. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is insinuated. Nobody, because Jesus Christ is interceding on your behalf. Whatever you've done, as you confess it, he hears the confession, he takes it, he offers it to God the Father with his nail-scarred hands, and the Father, would he need to be reminded, Could would just look at those hands and go, oh, that's, that, that's right, that one's one of the ones that's paid for. The person who is interceding for you is the person who paid the price for your sins. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There is one God, And there is one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So here the word is mediator. In Romans 8, 33 and 34, it was intercessor or interceding. And in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, we've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In Hebrews 7, The author of Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews 7, 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, which means uh, I will, if we're just going to put it in modern evangelical terms, eventually I'll be prevented by death from continuing in this office. The great news is um, by then we will have risen up somebody to replace me long hopefully before my death if the Lord tarries and gives me the years right now I could keel over tomorrow guess what I won't be doing next Sunday if I die tomorrow this office right and I'll be much happier for it there'll be some sad people I won't be one of them because I'll be with him in glory right uh, the former priests were many in number because they were pre- prevented by death from continuing an office. So in the same way, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Old uh, Covenant law, the priests served for a season and then they might never serve again. Uh, if they did, the, then eventually they would die and they're never filling that office again. But Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So he died once. Uh, to pay the price for sin for all of his people. He was raised again because he was righteous. He was counted just. And he cannot and will not ever cease from the office offices of prophet, priest, and king. He's going to reign in, in, and occupy those offices in perpetuity, forever. It will never change. God's never going to hear a confession from you, look over, and Jesus not be there interceding on your behalf. That can't happen. He won't die again. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. It was what? It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. How is it fitting that a sinner should have a high priest who's not a sinner? God doesn't need to hear from anybody who is a sinner. He needs to hear from one who's not. Sin creates a separation between me and my creator. Christ Jesus the righteous came that that separation might be eliminated and I might be thrust into relationship with the one who made me. I could not do that myself. We watched some fellows back in Genesis attempt to build a tower that could get to heaven and how'd that work out for them? The modern machine is self-destructive in nature. It's self-consuming. If you engage all of modernity in the pursuit of God, what you will get is just the worship of human beings. So God comes down. He lives perfectly. He dies really. He's risen again in new life because he was just. And now it's fitting that he who never sinned represents me because I can't not sin. God believes it's fitting. Why? Because it was his desire to be in relationship with you. So he established the only means by which that could happen. He has no need, verse 27, Hebrews 7, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who was made perfect, who has been made perfect forever. So the one who's your advocate, the one who's interceding for you, does not have any stain or blemish of sin, yet died just like you probably will someday. Endured the penalty of sin and then rose victorious over it. And now he's in heaven going, that's one of mine. That's one of mine. That's one of mine. Not that the father needs to be reminded but it's the Father's good pleasure to involve the mediator, to involve the intercessor, to glorify him, not you. We struggle with that part, I think. Verse 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. I'm uh, going to deal with this backwards, but you'll be okay. He's the propitiation... <laughs> for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to deal with not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, and then once I've made you all angry and you're not listening anymore, we'll deal with the word propitiation, and I'll be able to just make some stuff up, and you'll be like, I don't even remember what he said about that. Um, When we talk about the scope of the atonement, uh, reformed people get themselves into trouble, and the reason that we get ourselves into trouble—I consider myself a reformed person, which is why it's okay that I make fun of them so much. Um, the reason we get ourselves into trouble is because years and 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 years, and years, and years ago, um, a fellow named John Calvin um, uh, and his uh, predecessors came up with this word for the scope of the atonement, which is limited. They call it limited atonement. The problem with the the phrase, I guess it's not a word, the phrase limited atonement is it implies, if you just take it on its own, that there is something insufficient about the atonement of Jesus Christ that somehow limits it. That is not the point. What they're trying to say is that it's limited in a scope of its application, not its efficacy. Um, So a better way to describe this doctrine would be um, definite atonement. Um, which means its scope is not universal. I'm going to read you some verses. Um, I am not going to proof text. I hope after two years and some odd months, you know that I won't do that. Um, I'm not going to proof text, but I'm also not going to make the other side's argument for them. If you would like to make that argument, we can grab coffee this week and invite as many people as you want. Um, or we can do a debate at some point. John eleven fifty one 51 and 52. <clears throat> um, the scene is the, the Pharisees are getting together and kind of planning how they're going to take Jesus out. And one of them says uh, something about it being expedient for one man to die for the nation. And John eleven fifty one. John gives us the inside scoop. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is John eleven 52. I'm going to read it again, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What picture does that paint in your mind? And what I'm dealing with, just so I'm really clear, is in 1 John 2, 2, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Got to deal with that. In John eleven fifty two, it says, not for the nation, meaning not just Israel, but for all those who are scattered across the earth. What's meant by that? All of humanity, Is that what John means in 1 John 2, 2? All of humanity will be saved. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for every last soul that ever walked the earth. Let's keep going. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Which suggests that there were those who believed and there were those who did not, right? I doubt very much that anybody attending a Southern Baptist church in 2024 is a universalist. I don't think there's anybody that's gonna hear this sermon that's gonna be like, what, Jesus doesn't save everybody? So we already kind of limit the atonement. We we make it definite, even if you're not a five-point Calvinist, which is fine with me. I have no problem. God bless you. I'm happy that you're not. It gives me something to do. It's okay that we disagree about these things, but I just want to point out, you're limiting the atonement, too, by saying that not everybody on the face of the planet gets saved. And obviously, not everybody on the face of the planet who's ever lived was saved, right? Right? So, we're not universalists. So, what are we saying about the scope of the atonement when we read verses that say, as many as were appointed to eternal life were uh, believed? Sorry. Romans 8:30 Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Doesn't that suggest an exclusion by category? There were those he called, and this is what he did with them. Or is it everybody? What well, can't be everybody? Because there, there's a distinction between those called and those not. How? Who are, Let's. I tell you what, real quick. Um, let's put all the called people on this side of the room, and all the not called people on this side of the room. We can't do that. Oh, and I can't have you come up here and direct people based on your knowledge of who's really a Christian and who's not, can I? We don't know. We don't know who the called are. But we aren't saying, therefore, that there's no distinction. Romans eleven seven. 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Well, That's pretty clear, pretty stark. So he's looking back historically at the nation of Israel. And what Paul says in Romans 11 there is there were some, there was a remnant in the nation of Israel who believed the promise of God and were saved looking ahead to the coming Messiah. And there were many who did not. And those that don't believe are not saved. So Jesus died. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also those of the whole world Cannot mean every human being everywhere. It must mean something else. John seventeen nine. Jesus is praying. This is the. I mean, I usually don't do this one because it tends to wreck people. Um, Jesus is praying, and he says to God the Father as he's praying, "I am praying for them. I am not." praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours there is a limit and we don't know who it is we don't know what the delimiting factors are but there's a limit to who christ died to save one drop of his blood would be sufficient to save all people everywhere were that the good pleasure of the father And then finally, Acts 2.39. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So who's going to be saved? Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So when you see verses in Scripture that um, say all, and... I, I, I agree with this idea that the simplest translation is probably the most accurate. The simplest solution is probably the right one. Like I understand all of that philosophically and even scientifically that there's truth to that. However, there's a truth that precedes that. So when I, I last got into this conversation with somebody who was like, all means all. I had to point out as gently as I could that there are even there's a category limitation on the word all when it gets used. For instance, consider Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We all know this verse. That's not a new verse to you. So does all mean all? And we would all say, absolutely, amen. Yes, all means all because there's not a human being that hasn't sinned. Wait a minute. It doesn't say human being, it says all. So doesn't that mean the angels too? Oh, wait, no. No, there's, there's a built-in limitation on the use of the word all there. Or in, uh, this is a little bit more fun one, Luke 21, 37 and 38. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So I guess Herod and Pilate were there, and the Native Americans must have come over too. Or is there a category limitation on the word all and what's meant by it? So the whole world does not mean every member of the whole entire human race. It means not just the Jews. It means not just Israel. It means people from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue will hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, embrace the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith, and so be saved from their sins from everywhere, which is really good news. And again, because we don't know who they are and who they aren't, our call is to go into all the world, therefore making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Well, I don't look at somebody and go, looks like a good candidate. They seem nice. Let me preach the gospel to them. It means every time that the Lord presents an opportunity for me to share the gospel, I do it. And I don't ever really probably know what the outcome of that is. I had somebody at work, uh, you know, bump into me and she's, she's, I blew it already. She's like, uh, hey, you've got daughters. And I'm like, yep. And she's like, how do you deal with fill in the blank? And it was a great question. How do you deal with, uh, your kids struggle to, to maintain their own unique identity in a culture that uh, you know, we've created over the last 100 years, which is designed to squeeze their identity out of them, and it has been filled with psychopaths that will make fun of them over anything about them that's different. How do you keep your kids from falling into the trap of needing a Stanley in order to survive junior high? <laughs> it's a great question. Boy, was she not ready for my answer, I think, when I said, I've tried to raise my girls to understand that Jesus Christ is the only friend that's going to stick closer to them than a brother. And I've tried to teach them and help them to embrace by faith and believe that he really does love them, and that it's not conditional, and that if they deal with their sins by confessing them, I mean, the eyes were glazing over and that was not the answer that they expected but this was an opportunity right you just asked me how I try to help my girls get through this disaster that we call public school no offense to public school teachers I'm not blaming you I'm blaming the psychopath kids whose parents have (laughs) never mind we don't have time (laughs) anyway it was an opportunity for me to, to share the gospel. Oh, this is also not me going, look how good I did, everybody. That's not That's not the point either. The point is I don't know whether or not she's one of the elect, quote unquote, one of the many, quote unquote. But I know I had a chance. I know I had an opportunity. And so I. there's plenty of times... When I haven't, when I've failed, when I've been a coward, wouldn't really illuminate the point of the sermon for me to share one of those. But let me just say it for the sake of discussion. Lest you think I'm trying to magnify myself, I do not always faithfully do this. There are some times when I get scared and I just shut my mouth and don't say anything. But I'm not trying to decide ahead of time who's saved and who's not. And shame on anybody that does. It makes me wonder if they're saved. All right. So the whole world does not mean every member of the entire human race. It means the Jew, not just the Jews, but more importantly, perhaps it means not just those who were alive when Jesus walked the earth. So He is our uh, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Also gives us an expanse into future. Right? So this was written a couple thousand years ago. We're sitting here reading it today, translated from Greek to some version of English. A lot of the words here aren't even used in Greek anymore. They're like, it's archaic language. So we're, you know, we might not be entirely confident that we've got it right, but thank God there's tons of other texts that we can use to interpret it. Anybody that says, I don't really trust the Bible because it's been translated hundreds of times. No, it hasn't. It's been translated once. Once. We have the original Hebrew, we have the original Greek. And somebody lied to them and told them, it's been translated hundreds of times, you don't know what it says anymore. Okay, anyway, not the point. The idea is, you're reading it now today, and there's a good chance that your comprehension that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for your sins might thrust you into fellowship with With the Father where you've never been before. You might today embrace by faith the truth of the gospel. The question is never who is excluded. The question is rather who is included. And are you? Are you? That's the question. All right, so everybody distracted? Let's deal with the word propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. Uh, All right, we got to talk about anger, and I hesitate to do this because you never know what the outcome is going to be. I don't want to tear a scab off of a wound while you're in the middle of church and then have you spend the rest of the day sour about something that happened to you a while back that I brought up, okay? But I don't know how else to illustrate this because I'm not I I don't think there's a better way. So what I need you to do is think about something that happened to you, not yesterday, not this week, but like get far back, a few years if possible. If you're super young and you can't, then just go back as far as you can. Something that happened to you, preferably something that somebody else did to you, that makes you angry. Could be an ex-spouse, could be uh, somebody at work, could be your parents, could be the government. Boy, Audrey's got a story she could tell. Something happened to her this week that makes me angry just thinking about it. Uh, not my daughter. So it's not my story to tell. Anyway, um, get it in your head. Shouldn't you be over this by now? Whatever it is, but is it not true that you got something in your head? Like you were able to, probably for the most part, most of you were able to be like, okay, he wants me to think about something that angers me, oh, that rat, right? You're like pretty quick. We can get a hold of something in our memory that happened to us that makes us angry. And so then my question is, how do you deal with that? And the answer is I get busy doing something else, Right? I, I, try, I try to, I count my blessings. I journal, I write it again. And then they said this, and I, can't. and you work it out and you just go to bed and you get up the next day and it's like not right in front of your mind. So you're able to kind of move on. That's not really dealing with your anger though, is it? It's just putting it away. It's just like, ah. Propitiation. How does God deal with his anger? So you're going to hear two words, and and oftentimes these words are interchanged and abused. So if you're taking notes, and you have a source of doctrinal information that disagrees with me, I don't want to fight, but I'm right. Okay? Expiation. The word expiation has to do with the action involved in removing our sin Uh, in Christ, who is our expiation. I'm not talking about propitiation, the fourth word up there. I'm talking about another word. In Christ, who is our expiation, God placed our guilt so that we would bear it no longer. He then, uh, while our guilt was being carried by Jesus Christ, God then crushed his own son to deal with our sin. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 53 with me. Isaiah 53. Um, we're gonna pick it up in verse five. I mean, we could read the whole chapter, but we're running out of time. So Isaiah 53. It's kind of in the middle of your Bible. He was. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with or by his wounds, we are healed. Don't leave, because we're going to be in chapter 53 for another minute. The idea that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, first, to have burr, B-U-R-R, needs to be reduced from ours to mine, right? So what I need you to do is recognize that what your Bible is telling you is that the person, Jesus Christ, was crushed for my transgressions. That he was bruised uh, and crushed because of my iniquity, which is my bent to sinning. Not our Yours, mine. By his wounds, I am healed. And look at verse 10. This is your fault. He did this for you, okay? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord... To crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, God will see and be satisfied By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You you have to make it personal first. You have to make it my sin, my iniquity, he bore, and then while he was carrying my sin, my iniquity, God was pleased to crush him. To deal with sin so that I could be healed. So that I could be accounted righteous. That's expiation. That deals with your sin, atonement, right? Propitiation Uh, is different. Has to do with God's heart. Toward the center. Propitiation is how we describe the wrath of God being satisfied. Expiation is dealing with your guilt before him. Listen to me. Expiation is dealing with your guilt before God. Propitiation is dealing with his wrath towards you. Guess how that happens? He is the propitiation for my sin. In Christ, our propitiation, God's store of anger at me brought about by my sin, his stored up anger at me brought about by my sin is emptied out. His suffering satisfied the wrath of God and that wrath is gone. Now, does that mean that no matter what you do, God is always happy with you? No. That's not what that means. Otherwise, there wouldn't be verses that say don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? But the wrath that would have cast you headlong into hell on Judgment Day has been dealt with. And God is not mad at you right now. Whatever condition you've come into this place in or whatever condition you find yourself listening to this message in, God is not angry with you because Jesus is our propitiation. He deals with the wrath of God. Now listen to Romans 3.23 with all that in mind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. You tracking with me? And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Whose idea was it for Jesus to come, take on my transgression, and be crushed by God in order to deal with his wrath? Whose idea was that? Not mine. Whose idea was that? Not yours. Whose idea was that? Jesus is the Son, and God is the Father, covenanted together before time began to redeem you from sin Through his death, burial, and resurrection and glorification. They came up with this. What did I bring to the table? Breathtaking evil. That's what I brought to the table. So why does John bring this up right here? Why this flow of information? Think about it like this. All right, so go back to first John, look at verse 8. No sin, what are you? Self-deceived, right? So verse 8 says, no sin, self-deceived. Verse 9, confess sin, what is he? He's faithful. Verse 8, no sin, self-deceived. Verse 9, confess sin, he's faithful. Verse 10, no sin, you're calling God a liar. 2-1, I'm saying these things so you won't sin. Okay, all right. So sound it out with me. No sin, self-deceit. Okay, don't want to do that. Don't want to be self-deceit. Confess sin, faithful and righteous. He forgives me, cleanses me. Great, confessing sin. Verse 10, no sin, you're calling God a liar. Okay, so I've confessed, I still have sin. It didn't stop, right? I'm like right now, failing to glorify God with all of my heart, soul, mind and strength. So I still have sin. So what difference does it make? Might as well just sin. Ah, Verse 1, chapter 2, I'm saying these things so that you will not sin. If anybody does, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. A heretical teacher would get to this point and tell you, it's okay. It's okay. God loves you just the way you are. A good teacher will get to this point and tell you, it's okay. God loves you just the way you are. And he is not going to allow you to continue to live your life in a way which produces agony and regret and self-glorification, which leads to isolation and loneliness and anger and anxiety and bitterness and wrath. He's not going to do that. It's okay. Confess your sin, but I'm telling you this so that you won't sin. And what happens is when gratitude flows through your heart and supplants sin from the high seat, reigning above everything, sin doesn't leave your heart. It's still there. It's just dethroned. It doesn't rain anymore. But man, you don't want to let it back in that seat. So you fight it. Romans 5, 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. We're almost done. So if you want to just feel like you paid attention the whole time, you can just tune in right now. Romans 5.20 says, the law came in <clears throat> to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, okay? Law comes in, and the law's like, uh, don't speed, and you're like, I don't, okay, and you look at your speedometer, you're going 55, and the law's like, I said don't speed, and you're like, uh. Ah. so you start looking for a speed limit sign, you see a speed limit sign that says 35, the law came in, showed you that you're in sin. I'm going 55, the sign says 35, right? So the law came in to increase the trespass, to illuminate it, to show you what it was. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So on a micro level, in your own heart, in your own existence, the law comes in and it shows you uh, men. I'll just deal with men because I don't know. Maybe when I'm 53, I'll be ready to deal with women. Men, don't commit adultery, right? And we're like, oh, okay. It's better if I just have the one wife. All right, got it. Then Jesus comes and he says, I tell you, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And we're like, word? Right? Right? And sin is increased because we, we, oh, I thought just by staying at least externally, physically faithful to her, I was squared away. But now I just found out that all the perverted thoughts that I've ever had are essentially making me as guilty as if I, now she's not as mad because I haven't transgressed the marriage in, in a literal physical sense. But the Lord's like, you're not a faithful husband, you piece of trash. I know what's in your heart. And you're like, oh, no. And then he goes, I'm just joking. You're not a piece of trash. I love you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So he's like, here's your sin. And you go, that's disgusting. He goes, I-, I know. Let's get rid of it. Let's deal with it. Here's grace. I still love you. I still want to be in fellowship with you. I've dealt with that sin too. So let's confess it. Let's get it cleaned up. Let's go on to the next thing. And everywhere you find sin, guess what you're also going to find in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Grace. So, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 6-1, Romans 6-1, okay? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound even more? May it never be, by no means, no. How can he or we who died to sin still live in it, which in turn convicts the one who has been sinning, if indeed you are a Christian, right? How can he who's died to sin still live in it? Well, we could all line up and take turns coming up to the microphone and trying to answer that question because there's nobody in this room who isn't still in sin. How do you still do that? Aren't you grateful for what God did for you by sending his son to save you from that? How can you still sin? Well, Thank God there's grace because God's not up there asking that question. He's right next to you right now, with you, facing you, loving you with grace. But you get convicted, and every time you find you have sin to confess, you're tempted to do what? Oh, there's more? Oh, more sin. I'm tempted to delay, I'm tempted to hide, I'm tempted to deny it. Every time, the Lord's like, hey, pst, that's evil. I'm like, "Well, I'm sorry. Can't hear you. Don't understand. What? Let me go play video games. TikTok. Right? Whatever your thing is. The temptation is delay, deny, ignore, hide. So John reminds us that the wrath of God has been dealt with. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's not reminding you because he's mad at you and he wants you to explain yourself. He's reminding you so you can deal with it, so you can confess it, so that you can unburden your heart and walk in life with him. He reminds you so that you'll be freed to confess, not freed to sin. Amen? All right, so my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, it, if anyone does sin, he or she has an advocate with God, the Father. I have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is my advocate with the Father. He is the propitiation, the wrath dealing with Savior, of sinners, of me, and not just me, but everyone else that God is saving as well. Hallelujah. We're not alone. Amen? All right, let's pray.